Well, I want to change gears and I want to catch you up for those of you that may be just joining or recap for those of you that have been through the first two weeks of our series called Wholehearted. We started two weeks ago, Lloyd and I did here together with telling the story of fellowship. This church is 20 years old this year and there's some lessons that we've learned through a story that's not been all easy. So we shared very openly and, and kind of honestly and vulnerably, this is who we are as a church. Here's the high points, here's the low points, here's everything in between. Here's what we are learning through our own story and asked you to reflect on your own story and see it as God's story, his work of redemption in you, just as it is for us as a church. And we've reflected on the idea of, you know, when you're 20 years old as a human being, you're asking questions. You I mean, you have some life behind you, but you're asking some questions, right? Questions you're asking are, who am I and where am I going? And we're asking similar questions as a church, not to take away from anything God has done in the past, but this is a good season for us at 20 years to, to re-ask the questions, who has God called us to be and where has God called us to go? And so last week, Lloyd began that journey with the question of who are we? And he answered it, this is who we are. And he answered it through five unique values that were really birthed out of our story. And I'm gonna put those on the screen and I'm gonna walk back through those five values. But before I do, let me say this. When we say we around here, like who are we and where are we going and what, is, what are our, uh, what, you know, what are the values for us? And we use we and us. We're, we're not talking about Lloyd and Rob or the staff or the elders or, or even those of you who volunteer, you know, that are kind of all integrated in the core of fellowship. We're talking about the whole community of faith that calls Fellowship Bible Church their home. It's we. Think of it this way. Those of you who assemble at this campus and at our Franklin campus and then are scattered throughout the week around Middle Tennessee, carrying out the mission of God. That's the we in the statement. We are an entity. We are an organization. We are a church. And it's easy to think about the church, you know, kind of like the grocery store. Like that's where I, I go when I'm in the mood, you know, to, to consume some religious goods and services. That's not the biblical picture of a church. The biblical picture of a church is a community of faith of people growing together, struggling together, worshiping God together, helping one another as we go. That's the kind of we that we want to be. And so here are the five core values that define our culture here at Fellowship Bible Church. We are word-centered. These, these will come up on the screen somewhere here in a minute. There they are. We are spirit-dependent. We are better together. We are courageously real, and we are not about ourselves. And, and these kind of build out in a particular order. We start with the word of God. The church we're called to be the culture we're called to have here at Fellowship always has to be rooted in God's word. His written word and the word made flesh, Jesus. We are a word-centered church and all that that entails. Lloyd did a great job of unpacking that last week. If you missed it, highly encourage you, go back and watch the message. We, we want you not to be left out in this. We are spirit dependent. That means we acknowledge that it's not about us. Well, I guess I just said the last one, but we acknowledge that we must depend upon something beyond us in order to be the people of God that God has called us to. And he's given us that power. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna depend upon the spirit. Now, it's rare for a church to have both of those lived out in its culture. And this is one of the reasons I love this church. We are word-centered and spirit-dependent. And word and spirit go together all throughout the scripture. 
word and spirit. So much more we could say about that. And we will over time. We are better together. That means on our staff, we believe in team ministry. And in our whole church, we believe in community. We believe in coming together. We focus on groups. We focus on relationships because we believe that we're not meant to walk the walk of faith alone. We're meant to walk it together. We're better together. We are courageously real. As we get into community, we can take off the mask and be the whole person that God designed us to be. Admitting weakness, being vulnerable, encouraging one another as we grow because our identity is in Christ, not in our image. It enables us to be courageously real with other people. And then from that, we're able to be not about ourselves. We were here for a purpose. We were here for a mission. We have to go beyond our walls. It's not about fellowship and it's not about me and it's not about any of you as individuals. We are here for other people. It's not about ourselves. Now, this morning we're going to talk about mission. And let me just say this on the, out, on the out front. Mission is always going to have an element to it that's going to make us uncomfortable. And that's by design. A mission statement is designed not just to clarify what we do, that's a part of it, but it's designed to get us out. It's designed to get us into places that we may not go on our own. A mission statement is by definition designed to activate us. And it's hard and uncomfortable sometimes to be activated. So if you feel a little bit of that this morning, I think you'll feel some excitement too, but if you feel a little bit of discomfort, that's part of what that is. Here's what a mission statement is. Lloyd used the analogy last week of, uh, of the fletchings on an arrow or the values. The fletchings help the arrow fly straight. And he like launched some crazy thing. I watched the video of it. And when you pull the fletchings off the arrow and you, you fire, you, is that what you fire? I guess you shoot. I don't know what you do. Whatever you do with a bow. It's like, I'm not a hunter like Lloyd is, okay? And that's good, right? I'm not killing Bambi, uh, but like Lloyd is. But, but anyway, we'll leave that aside. <laughs> The, the arrow goes crazy because it doesn't have the fletchings. Now, you put the fletchings on an arrow, it can go straight toward a target. Our mission statement is the center of our target, that our values on the arrow are gonna help us fly straight toward the target. So what's at the center of the target? That's the question that we're gonna be unpacking this morning. Now, we have had a mission statement for 20 years, and there's nothing wrong with our mission statement. It's a good one. In fact, let me read it to you. It served us well for a long time. The fellowship's mission up to this point has been to glorify God by proclaiming Christ, maturing in the faith, and giving our lives away. Proclaiming Christ, maturing in the faith, giving our lives away. You've probably heard that. I hope you have, or at least some part of it. Um, I want to state on the forefront, we're not pursuing a different mission. We're gonna articulate it in fresh language but it's the same core mission. It has to be because the mission doesn't come from us. It comes from the word of God to his church. And so let me explain how we're gonna unpack our mission and why change it at all? Well, one reason is it's just good to keep it fresh. There's some new energy and some new infusion. But the second reason is we think we can actually clarify the language a little bit more to drive us into the areas that we believe Christ is leading us to activate us. And we think this has been a good articulation of the mission, but we need, we, need, we, need, we need to be activated a little bit more with a bit more clarity. So let me explain what this is going to look like. And I think for some of you, this will make a lot of sense. If our mission is the target, we'll put a graphic on the back here. I want you to think about the target with three concentric circles. 
And I'm going to talk about it from the outside in. There is a sense that all humanity has a mission. All humankind, every human being has a common mission. All mankind. That's like the outer layer of the target. We have to at least hit that because we're created by God as human beings. What are human beings called to do? What's our purpose? That's going to be the first component of our mission statement. Go narrower than that. How about the church? The church is a unique entity. Jesus gave the church a clear mission. So you see, our mission starts with the purpose God created mankind. Then it goes a little bit tighter into the mission he gave the church in general, not not fellowship in particular, but the church universal across the world, across history for the past 2,000 years. There's a clear mission there. And then the center of the target is what are we, Fellowship Bible Church, called to be as a local expression of the purpose of mankind and the mission of the church in our unique time and space. Do you see how this works? Now, a good mission statement will center you on all three. Here's why humans exist. Here's the mission of the church. And this is the center of the target for us, Fellowship Bible Church, in our unique time, in our unique place, in our unique giftings, in our unique resources, in our unique makeup. All that's going to be carried in our mission statement. That's one of the reasons we want to change the language is to kind of properly express that dynamic. So you're going to see that play out. And I'm going to talk about each three, all three components of our mission. And then I'll put it all together at the end. Let's start with the broadest level, mankind. What is the purpose of all mankind? Open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 1. What a good place to start if asking the question, why do humans exist? Okay, profound philosophical question, profound existential question. We need to know the answer. We need to have an answer when people ask us. And we find it many places in the Bible, but I want to start in Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. This is the pinnacle of God's uh, six-day creation. He's, he's coming to day six, and, and here's what it says in Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is humanity here, not just men. Men and women who together form mankind. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I have to be careful with my time here because I want to geek out on these two verses. There's so much here. We tend to look at these verses and say, oh, he's just establishing the food chain. Humans are at the top of the food chain. Or or a lot of times when people hear the image of God, they just think, oh, that just means that we're special. You know, we're different than the animals. Okay, that's not the core message of being image bearers of God. When we're made in the image of God, uh, what that means is we're called to represent his rule. We're called to actually be under rulers, under the senior or the head ruler, and we are called to govern creation. Now, let me just double click really quickly on the word image. In Hebrew, it's the same word you would use for statue or even idol. It is a a physical object that points to or represents or embodies a deity or a great king. 
And so in that day in the pagan nations, most of the kings were called images of God. So whatever God or gods that kingdom worshiped, the king was thought to be an embodiment or an image of that God. So if you had a statue of a king, it was a reminder that the king is the image of God and the statue is the image of the king. And so you'd come into a city, you see these great statues and, and it's sort of, you're, you're walking into the domain or the glory of the king who was an embodiment of the God. And what God says to the Hebrew people, the one true God says to his people is he says, don't go making images because you are my image. You are called to represent my rule on the earth. You are called to subdue. Now, subdue doesn't mean pound our fist into creation. Subdue means to cultivate the raw creation and bring it into flourishing, representing the authority of God and representing the creativity of God and representing the justice and love of God as we steward this great creation. Do you realize God has called human beings to a creative work on this earth to partner with him in taking the rawness of his creation and cultivating it into something that flourishes? That's the point of gardening. That's the point of Adam's task in the garden. He was a gardener. All of us in our different spheres of influence are in essence gardeners. We take raw material that God has made, whether it's notes, if you think about music and songwriting, whether it's intellectual potential for those of you that are teachers, whether it's money for those of you that are bankers or work with money, whatever your industry is, in essence, you're taking things that God has created, put on this earth, and you're cultivating it for the flourishing of mankind, and you're doing that in the image of God. That's our core task. Now, saying all that in a mission statement would get really long and hard to remember. So when you read through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you see this phrase used over and over again that's shorthand for the full purpose God has given man. And the shorthand term, you're all familiar with it, is to glorify God. To glorify God. Let me show you just a couple scripture passages uh, really briefly on that. Um, Isaiah 43. We'll, we'll, we'll really just look at this one for now. There are so many we could put up. But Isaiah 43 um, the second half of verse six and verse seven says this, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So there's a sense that all creation exists to glorify God. Okay, there's that sense. But there's also a particular purpose of mankind, how we glorify God as image bearers. And here's how I would articulate this. Just, I, I know we're getting into some theology here, but I want you to see how every word of our mission statement is rooted in biblical theology. That's why we're unpacking all this. Here's how I would describe the purpose of mankind. To be image bearers of a glorious God and representative rulers over his creation, this is the uniquely human way of glorifying God. So here's the first part of our mission statement. We exist to glorify God. We exist to glorify God because all of humanity exists to glorify God. But the reason I took some time to talk about Genesis 1 and our task as human beings is we often have these stale, dry, 
uninviting perceptions of what it means to glorify God. We think it means that there's some egomaniac deity up there that demands our worship, that demands our praise. It's so much richer than that. It's so much deeper. So I want to press into this objection really briefly, and I can't spend too much time on it. But a lot of people say glorifying God just sounds so selfish of him. Like, I don't want to be a means to someone else's end. Why is it that God's always demanding worship from his people, etc.? Let let me just debunk that a bit if I can. To glorify God doesn't mean puff him up. Like, he's not some egocentric uh, um, deity, you, you know, up there that's just saying, why aren't you glorifying me? It's not about you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's much closer conceptually to the idea of honoring someone in whose presence you are and you cannot help but delight in the beauty and glory and creativity of that person. Think about your favorite artist, your favorite author, your favorite actor. Um, Think about someone from history that you greatly admire. You know, know, who would be someone that you would like give your right arm to have coffee with someday before you die, okay? When you spend time in that person's presence, if you ever had the opportunity to, what's gonna naturally flow out of your mouth is honor toward the gifts or the character or or, or the accomplishments of that person. Why is it? Because you are just like somewhat in awe of their work of art or of, of what they've done or who they are. Okay, awe, rightfully used, refers to the true artist. And when we are in his presence, he is so glorious, he is so loving, he is so just, He is so deeply satisfying that we cannot help but for praise to come out of us. Now, the reformers had this statement in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. They answered the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. They connect the concept of God's glory and our delight and our enjoyment. And rightly understood, glorifying God has that with it. You are to be about the work God has called you to do and do it in such a way that points to the true artist, that points to the true creator, that points to the true glorious one. That's all carried up in this idea of glorifying God. And by the way, Is there anyone else in all creation that you would rather all creation be centered around? Like, would you really want your favorite musician or your favorite actor or your favorite athlete to be the center of the universe? Of course you wouldn't. Would you really want a political figure to be the center? Would you really want a particular country or a group or a political party or or, um, uh, the an individual or group of any kind other than God to be the center of the the earth? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't because we all recognize that except for God alone, none of us can bear the weight of glory. God can. He's the only one that holds it all together. And so as we glorify God, not just through praise, but through the way we live, not just through our doing, but through our being, both combined together as we glorify God, we find joy in him. Now, uh, someday we'll do a series on, on glorifying God. It's incredibly rich. For now, I want to move on. But just suffice it to say, our first statement that we're going to come to why we exist as a church is we exist 
to glorify God. That's the outer ring of our circle. Now we're going to move on from there. The biblical story unfolds and it becomes painfully obvious that something is wrong with human beings where they cannot live out their core purpose of being image bearers of God, of glorifying God. They can't live it out. Um, Our inability and our failure to be proper images of God, to be right images of God, is called sin. It's called sin. Double click on the word sin and you're gonna find that it has the connotation of missing the mark. It is an archery term. It's the idea of you were shooting at a target and you went wide right or you went wide left, you missed it. You didn't hit your target. You're off the mark. That's the idea of sin. So the purpose of mankind to glorify God, there's something in us, we can't do it. Like we're fundamentally flawed. The image of God has been disfigured to a place where it's barely recognizable and we're not able to be proper image bearers of him. And exhibit A of that is Israel. God calls them out to be a distinct nation to glorify him in particular ways and they cannot do it for more than a moment at a time. And he says, Israel, I want you to be the representative of my rule, my authority, my power, so that all the ends of the earth will come to glorify me. And they couldn't do it. You and I couldn't do it either. Because there's something deep within us that is now flawed. And so the words of the prophets over and over again was was this. Something deep inside of you is broken. Something internal is disformed and disfigured. And until you have an internal change, not an external change, until you have an internal change, you cannot represent God's image. You cannot fully anyway Be the image of God on the face of the creation and be about your task of glorifying God with everything you do. You can't do it. And so the prophets came to Israel and and they started using the metaphor of the heart. You know, because in in Hebrew uh, vernacular, the heart means your inner self. And so uh, Moses said, um, your heart needs to be circumcised. And, and uh, the other prophets said, you need a new heart. You have a heart of stone and you need a heart of flesh. Um, others talked about that the, the heart needs to be put back together and it's been divided and it needs to now be undivided in, in, in the psalm that we read a couple of weeks ago. And so it's no surprise when Jesus arrived, he's talking about the heart. He's talking about the internal person. His whole... Um, Challenge to the Pharisees is you think righteousness is external. You think it's about washings and tithing and religious acts. It's not. Righteousness is internal and what's inside of you is not clean. So then he says, so be cleansed. How do they become cleansed? That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus came to do to do something about our sin problem. To get us back on the mark, you see. 
Now, he also came, and, and, and this, is, this is missed a lot of times when we just say Jesus came only to fix our sin problem. You're, you're missing something important. Jesus also came to fulfill the core purpose of humanity, which is to glorify God by being an image of God himself. So Paul grabs onto this in Colossians 1, and he says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So all of us flawed images, Jesus comes and he's the image. So through his life, rightly living as the image of God, rightly representing the kingdom of God on the earth, rightly bearing the authority and justice and love of God the Father on the earth, which was humanity's original task, through his life, we that are in Christ can now get back on target. And so Jesus not only deals with our sin problem, but he fulfills for us our purpose. And then he invites us into his life so we can live out our purpose of being an image of the image of God. Did you follow that? Okay. Some did, some didn't. That's fine. Let's just keep tracking through it. Now, the people who believed the message of Jesus, that put their faith in him, who aligned their lives with his teaching, became his followers. We call them disciples, but it just means followers. And so Jesus, after he'd completed his mission, life, death, resurrection, he's about to go back to the right hand of the Father, and he says, listen, I've got a mission for you. And so Jesus forms his church by giving them a mission, by pushing them outward. And so we're gonna see the clear mission of the church in Matthew chapter 28. You know, some of you that grew up in church, you're like, I know where he's going. He's going to Matthew 28. It's exactly right. Where else would we go? This is the mission of the church. So we've talked about the mission of all mankind to glorify God. Now we go to the mission of the church, Matthew 28. Uh, let me read to you three verses here. At the very last verses of the gospel of Matthew. And this is uh, the moment in time when Jesus gives the mission to his church that is still our mission. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mission Jesus gave the church was to multiply themselves. In essence, he's saying, make more disciples of me. Do the work that I started. Like that's how Jesus spent three years forming disciples. And Jesus is saying, my physical body is going. You are now gonna be my body on earth to continue making disciples. Like just literally continue the task that I started. Make more disciples. That's the mission of the church. And as you read the New Testament, you start to realize how beautiful that is. It's not converting people from one religion to another. Like that's our baggage that we have. So we have baggage with glorify God. We also have baggage with making disciples because in our culture, you don't force anybody to be, do anything and anything that they don't want, right? And, and, and I'm not saying we should, but I, I actually wanna say making disciples is far more beautiful and deep and rich than that. 
And so as you read the New Testament, you start to realize that like the followers of Jesus weren't trying to start another religion. They were not trying to attract people on a sales pitch to come join their religion. They weren't dissatisfied with Judaism and they came up with something new. What they actually were doing is they were inviting people to finally live the lives they were made to live. Lives that are able to glorify God and be his image on the earth because Jesus came to transform them from the inside out to be able to do that. So Paul grabs onto this idea and he talks about a new humanity. And I think what Paul's talking about in the new humanity, he's, he's grabbing onto what Jesus said to Nicodemus, that you have to be reborn. That, that you know, flesh gives birth to flesh but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so if you want to be a new creation, you actually have to have a second birth because what has to get changed is not your externals. What has to get changed is in here. It's at the soul level. It's at the spirit level. It's at the heart level. So Paul describes this new humanity, which is us, the church. And he calls us new creations. He, he describes us that we're filled with the breath of God, the spirit. He says that we're being formed in the image of Jesus, who himself is the true image of the father. And we're invited in to live out the core purpose we were always intended to. In other words, and this is not in any way kind of diminishing the invitation of Jesus. It's expanding it. Jesus is inviting people to become fully human. Full human beings living out the purpose for which we were made for. And that always centers on relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Like that, that is how big this is. So our mission statement now has two components. And I'm gonna have to either talk faster or cut some things, all right? Uh, because I've got one more to go. But we exist first and foremost to glorify God. Okay, that's the outer circle. Secondly, we exist to make disciples because that's the clear mission of the church. Every church in 2,000 years is called to that mission. Glorify God, make disciples. Glorify God, make disciples. You can say it in all kinds of different ways and, and that's all we're doing this morning is we're gonna articulate glorify God and make disciples. But we believe God would have us do that in a particular way in the time and space in which he's planted us. So the third and final part of our mission statement is going to articulate the unique way that we believe God has called us to glorify God and make disciples. All right? Hope, hope you're tracking with me so far as we're walking through this. Now, God put us in Middle Tennessee at the start of the 21st century. Okay, it's 2018. We were planted in 1998. Lord willing, we're going to be over 100 years old. Who knows what God has in store for us. But, but we're planning that this church is going to be around a long time. What this means is, Lord willing, we will have a mission that will go through the entire century that you and I are living in right now. And 
we are going to be rooted in this place in Middle Tennessee. We have no plans to start a campus in New York, you know, or anywhere like that. We're rooted in Middle Tennessee. Now, what does it mean for us to be rooted in Middle Tennessee at the start of the 21st century? Let me just offer this. In the last 20 years, people have flocked here from all over the country for one reason. They want the good life. And they think they can find it here. And why not? You know, it's beautiful. It's affluent. We've got great schools, great music, great entertainment, great opportunities, great jobs, beautiful surroundings, and, you know, southern charm to hold it all together. You know what else we also have now? A lot of disillusioned people thinking they could come here and find the good life, and they, it turns out they're, they're still searching for it. So there's no accident we taught through Ecclesiastes right before this series because at the heart of Ecclesiastes is a man who says, I want to have a life of meaning and I can't find it. Even in all the wealth, in all the beauty, in all the stuff, in all the purpose, I can't find my core. I can't find my true purpose. We know what they need. We know what they need. What they're chasing is not success and affluence and comfort. What they're actually chasing is wholeness. What they actually need is for their hearts to be put back together. What they actually need is internal transformation that results in a life that is worth living. And so Jesus in John 14, he says this to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. Okay, peace doesn't mean like zen. And it's not, you don't fight anymore with your spouse, okay? Peace means wholeness. Biblically, peace refers to completion, things put back in their proper place. It's the Hebrew idea of shalom. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you this peace. And then in Matthew 28, he says, so that you will make disciples of me, so they will also have peace. So they will also have wholeness. Look at this other articulation in John 10.10. 10. It says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that you may have life. That's why Jesus came. So we may have life. And not just life, have life abundantly. And that's not wealth and success and name it, claim it. It's not any of that. It actually means the kind of life that flows out. It's an overflowing life. It's, it's the kind of life where you, you, you have something in you deep down at the heart level that's becoming whole in Jesus, that's becoming complete in Jesus, and then that flows out of you to other people. That's what the concept of abundant life is. And so we finally get to our articulation, what we believe God has called us to for the next 10, 20 plus years in Middle Tennessee in the 21st century, people looking for wholeness who have broken, fractured hearts. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. Now, you read that and you're like, what is wholehearted life in Jesus? And I'm glad you asked. We're gonna spend the next two weeks digging deep on that idea, digging deep on that concept, but I have to tease it for just a minute. 
Wholehearted life in Jesus is what every person is looking for. Wholehearted life in Jesus is what you and I are looking for. Wholehearted life means that our whole life is changed. The heart in the Bible is not just your emotions, y'all. We're not getting all touchy-feely emotional here. The heart in the Bible is your whole person. It's your mind, it's your emotions, it's your deepest desires, and it's even your choices that you make. The heart is the control center of your whole person, according to Scripture. So to have a whole heart means we're going to be the kind of church that preaches well to stimulate our minds and worships well so that we can express praise to God and does community well so that we can have healthy relationships and lives out this mission in Williamson County, Middle Tennessee, and the ends of the world because it impacts our choices. It impacts our living. Think about how we can uniquely do this as a church. We're a Bible church. Okay, most of you came here, at least initially, because you wanted a church that took the mind seriously, that took the Bible seriously, that, that is going after a renewed mind. That's where this mission starts with. That's where a wholehearted transformation starts is with the renewing of our mind. But what you realize when you got here is they're not just intellectual. <laughs> like they actually want to live out their faith too. How do we do that? By allowing the gospel of Jesus and the written and living word to transform every part of us, every part of our heart. This strategy means we're going all in on discipleship. And this strategy means we're defining discipleship as the whole person must change. The whole person wants to come to life needs to come to life. And that only happens with Jesus at the center. So much more I could say, so much more I want to say. I'm gonna stop for now. Lloyd's gonna come back next week and, and he's gonna do a whole sermon on the theology of the heart, which roots this mission statement deeply in the Old and New Testaments. And I think for some of you, that, that's when you're gonna have a, a light bulb come off and you're gonna start to see, ah, oh, I think I see where we're going. I think I see where this is going. I, I'm kind of out of my mind excited about it. The, the, the potential it has for us as a church, not just to be a head church, not just to be a heart church, not just to be a church of action, but to be a whole, a whole kind of church. Loving God well, loving people well. Now, I want to pray for us, and by way of the so what this morning, uh, we just need to acknowledge that there is something in us, even those of us that are believers in Christ, that, that is still fractured. And that's our reality too. And so we need transformation. In order for us to help other people find wholehearted life, we need wholehearted life. And so I want to pray for us as a body. And I want to pray using a, passion, uh, a, passion, a passage from Ephesians chapter 1. If you've been tracking along in our 40 days, almost every day we're prompting you to pray through a scripture passage, to, to use scripture as a basis for a prayer. And so I want to do that this morning using Ephesians 1, 17 to 23, because this is a wholehearted prayer. And so if you'd bow your heads with me, 
Um, Father, we come before you acknowledging first and foremost your glory. You are the one true God. You are our Father through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we humbly ask you to give our minds spiritual wisdom and insight so that we might grow in our knowledge of you. And not only that, but we ask you to flood our hearts with understanding so that we can have confidence in the hope to which you've called us and greater faith in the incredible greatness of your power toward us the same power that raised your son Jesus from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at your right hand in the heavenly realms. And Jesus, we give you glory. You are far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. All things are under your authority. You are head over all things. And we are your body. We are your church. Therefore, Jesus, since you fill all things everywhere with yourself, would you also make us full and complete in you? We ask this in the only name worthy of praise, your name Oh, Jesus, amen.